Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. All right, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. And if you don't have your Bible, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. We're at church, amen? You need it. It's our book. We're studying it. So please grab your, your own Bible. I know it's on the screen, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Luke chapter 16 is where we'll be today. Um, we took a, a little break from January all the way till last weekend, Easter Sunday, from the book of Luke. And so we're going to be diving back into the book of Luke. I've been, we at Seneca Baptist Church have been in the book of Luke for, seems about two or three decades now, and uh, we're just working on it piece by piece. I believe that the Word of God should be preached through, and so you've known since I've been here that we preach through books, and we'll take commercial breaks, and so we're hopping back into the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 16, and I'm going to begin in verse 13. And if you say, well, that's not at the beginning of one of my sections, you're right. Uh, I'm going to bring in a verse from our last sermon just to kind of tie some things together. Verse 13 says, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Father, that seemed like a lot of subjects all at once, and you've got to help us make sense of that. So, Lord, we need you to send your Holy Spirit to be the, our teacher, to teach us all things. First Corinthians chapter 2 says, No one can understand the mind of the Father except the Spirit of the Father. And so we need you. Father, help us to see us in light of your word. Help us to see who we are, where we fall short, and how good the gospel truly is. We need your help. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Please be seated. So today, we're going to focus on a verse, okay? And, and this verse is going to be the, the kind of the theme of the entire sermon. And so we're going to look at the verse, and then we will walk through the rest of the text. So the key verse for the day is Luke chapter 16, verse 15. It says, and he said to them, 
you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Let me just be honest. From the very beginning today, that ending of that verse should cause each and every one of us a little trembling. That God knows our hearts. We would like to think that that's a good thing. Well, He knows your heart. We use that in the positive all the time, don't we? Oh, bless His heart. He's got a good heart. God knows He's got a good heart. Don't we do that sometimes? Trying to make excuses for somebody else? But in this text, it is not a good thing. In this text, we look at it, and it's not God knows his heart. Oh, bless him. He's trying real hard. In this text, the, the, the notion that God knows our hearts should cause a little trembling in our boots. And we're going to look at why that is today as we talk about self-justification and what does it mean to justify ourselves before men. Now, the great theologian Marion Webster in her dictionary says to justify yourself is to make excuses for ourselves. I know, I know in this room that that actually affects none of us, does it? We've never done that before, have we? In other words, it's to make ourselves seem right before men, to try to place ourselves in this text on the right side of God and on the right side of His Word. We do it all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. Sometimes we justify ourselves before men to avoid embarrassment. How many of you, you ever knew that, that, that man, if this truth was found out, it'd bring shame upon you? And so what do you do? In Louisiana, we'd call it crawfishing. We call it crawfishing. You start backpedaling real fast because you're trying to get yourself out of that embarrassment. Sometimes we do it to avoid punishment or trouble. Anybody ever been a parent? You're, you watch your children justify themselves so they keep out of trouble or punishment. Sometimes we do it to avoid guilt. And even worse, I need you to listen to me, sometimes we justify ourselves before men so that we might avoid God's conviction on our life. We learn it as young children, don't we? We're about to get in trouble, so we go, oh no, mama got the spoon. How many of you had a mama with a spoon? I think our world needs some more mamas with spoons. Amen, somebody? I had a mama with a spoon. We had a, a wood-sided station wagon, and uh, this was in the days before car seats were acquired, so I'd be riding in the way back of the station wagon. Anybody with me? Somehow, my mama could hit me with that spoon while she's driving, and she'd stay in between the lanes. She would. But listen, kids, kids do it. They, we learn it at a young age. But guess what? We are just like children in the Father's eyes. That we try to justify ourselves. It is the deepest impulse of our fallen heart. The deepest impulse. I want you to remember back to the Garden of Eden. There was nobody, no one that has ever lived, no true human who was not also truly God who understood the love of God better than Adam and Eve. And yet, when they sinned against God, they immediately began to justify themselves before God, didn't they? Well, God, 
it was her. And you gave her to me. So really, it's y'all's fault. I'm innocent here. And Eve looks at God and says, it wasn't my fault. The serpent did it. The devil made me do it. And we justify. In Luke chapter 10, there's another story about a young lawyer who comes to Jesus and he says, hey, um, what are the most important commandments? And Jesus says, you know the law. What's the law say? And he says, love your neighbor or love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you're right. And it says in Luke chapter 10, desiring to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives him the story of the good Samaritan. I need you to understand that self-justification is dangerous for our souls. And it reveals that we fear God more, or fear man more than we fear God. It reveals that we desire man's approval more than we want God's divine approval on our life. And I want you to see it in this text. I want you to see it right here in this text, okay? So before I get back to the text, and I'm going to get there and we're going to stay there, I want you to see... Um, how we do this, and there are four ways of how we do this, if you're taking notes today, four ways. Number one, we mock what is right. We mock what is right. Look down at verse 14. So Jesus just gave this incredible peril, parable in Luke chapter 16, uh, 1 all the way down to 13, and talking about, hey, don't, don't search for true riches, or these, these are temporary riches, but search for true riches, and and Jesus says no one can serve two masters. And in chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, in the Greek language, it's a fun word. It literally means that they turned their noses up at what Jesus had said. They turned their noses up at him. They snobbed him. If you can't beat it, mock it. Doesn't that seem to be the motto of our nation right now if you can't beat it mock it and those we disagree with we make fun of we harass we use sarcasm we call names we put them in their group and i'll be in my group we slander them we tear them down if you can't beat it mock it and that's exactly what we see in the text the second way that we do this and i'm not talking about just the pharisees but pastor ryan pharisee so one of the ways that I do this is we argue our point. We argue our point. Now, how many of you, like me, you hate being wrong? And sometimes, in the middle of an argument, you learn you're wrong, but you keep arguing your point. I'm halfway into it now. I might as well see it through, right? Doesn't that sound a lot like our nation? Our nation is just arguing points. But more, what worries me more is not our nation. Our nation's lost. They're going to act like they're lost. But worries me more is how we do this inside the church. We argue our point. And, and even inside the church, they're not looking to hear sides or they're not looking to understand. I'm looking to destroy you with my argument. Third way we do this is we look down on others. As more needy of God's forgiveness than I am. Oh, bless them. Don't they just need Jesus? And we look down on our, uh, down our noses at other people and we 
We might not ever say this, but we think it sometimes that I'm morally superior to that person or to this person or to that person who believes this. Don't we sometimes make charts of levels of sin that that sin's worse than this sin? So at least I'm not in that level of sin. I'm only in this level of sin. I have only offended a holy God this much. I, I need, these three things, they have something in common. Whenever, whenever we need someone else to be wrong per, to preserve our sense of okayness, we are in self-justification mode. Did you hear me, church family? Whenever we need a villain so that we are okay, that is not God's justification. That is self-justification. The Pharisees in this story They needed something to be wrong with Jesus so that they could quietly cover up the greed in their hearts. And sometimes we do that. The last way we do it is we do a cost analysis. We do this all the time. I'm looking at a a, a vehicle. And so I do a cost analysis. Is this vehicle worth it? Is the cost versus the reward worth it? And we do that all the time with all kinds of things in our life. And sometimes we do a cost analysis with the very commands of Jesus. And we analyze it and we come to the conclusion that the thought, the, the cost of doing what Jesus wants me to do is too expensive. So we justify our disobedience or take the easy road because the cost is too great. And I justify myself in the sight of men. So in the text, we're going to see two areas, two areas of life that the Pharisees were justifying themselves and that we also justify ourselves. The first one is in idols, is idols. I want you to look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, no servant can serve two what? Masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus likens money, or mammon in this text, to an idol. And so the idol Jesus was revealing in their hearts is the idol of money. The Greek word mammon. So we use money and the the thing that we think is cash money. We think of money and mammon speaks to so many different things. Mammon would speak to wealth. It would speak to um, possessions, homes, livestock. They didn't have 401ks in the bank, so their mammon, they built around them. Aren't you glad that we don't struggle with this ever? I sure am. See, in the way the Pharisees respond to Jesus' assault on their pocketbooks revealed the idol in their heart. It revealed what they treasure and what they worship. He says, no one can serve two masters. And then it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. How true of this is, it, is this of our culture? Man, the, the God of our culture is mammon, isn't it? What we can have, what we can own, and what we can live for. And isn't it funny how what we own, if not careful, will one day end up owning us? Isn't it true? Do you see it in this? What's interesting to me here 
is that these guys were blind to it. The Pharisees were blind to their idol of money. And I need you to understand, church family, that money has a way of doing that to us. Money has a way of blinding our eyes. Now, I've been in the ministry a lot, uh, almost 20 years now. And in the 20 years that I've been in ministry, I've heard lots of people fess up to lots of different sins in their life. I've heard people fess up to, you know, pornography and adultery and lying and stealing and all kinds of different things. But you want to know one sin that I've never heard somebody fess up to? Greed. I've never heard somebody say to me, Ryan, I'm greedy. And I struggle with that. You want to know why that is? Is because money has a way of blinding our eyes to seeing. That's why Jesus even talks about it and he says the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye's good, light fills the whole body. Money has a way of blinding us from seeing clearly. Have you ever had to go to the doctor? You had some pain somewhere around your body? You say, Doc, I don't know what's going on in my body. You go to the doctor. Well, the doctor, if he's a good doctor or she's a good doctor, is going to be thorough in their investigation to find out the root of the pain. And so the doctor is going to push and prod and, and dig into you until you say what? Ow! Doc, that hurt! I want you to understand, how do we know when Jesus has found an idol in our life? It's when we say, Ow! when we say, ow, when it hurts. See, the Pharisees' response in this text reveals that Jesus had put his finger on their idol. He's poking in the right place. I, side note, it's not the point of my sermon, but just understand, we talked about the Holy Spirit bringing discipline and conviction upon us in Sunday school this morning. I need you to understand that if Jesus doesn't occasionally poke you in a place that hurts, you might not be following Jesus at all. He's always going to poke us. The Bible says he wounds us to heal us. The Pharisees had bought into a different set of values. A value system of the world. It wasn't a value system of God. And he, he, well, How do we know that? Because Luke chapter 16 verse 15 says, God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That word abomination is the opposite of a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We're reading through the book of Leviticus, if you're reading through our daily Bible reading plan, and we learn about acceptable sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, how they're pleasing to the Lord. And this word abomination is the opposite of a pleasing sacrifice. In other words, we can do things that are acceptable to culture, applauded by culture, and even seem wise to our culture and find ourselves abominable in the sight of God. Offering displeasing or even disgusting sacrifices. And worse yet, we try to justify ourselves to seem like we're on the right side. The second place we justify ourselves is According to God's word. We justify ourselves in light of God's word. I want you to hear out of this text that the Pharisees are justifying their idols because they were justifying themselves in light 
of God's word. Luke chapter 16, verse 16 and 17 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Don't we see that happening in our culture, in our world, even in our churches? We see people trying to make void the word of God. Trying to cancel out and scratch off jots and tittles of the word. We see that, oh, that, that really, God really didn't mean that, did he? He wrote that for those people then, not for us people now. We are highly evolved. Bless our hearts, right? God isn't a God of wrath or justice. He's only a God of love. He loves everybody. Maybe on the other side, people will say, well, God isn't a God of love. He's only a God of wrath and justice. And he, you better watch out. He's out to get you. That's not a, a true story in the Bible. That's just a metaphor. It's an allegory. It's God using something that we can understand to make a point. Of course, Jonah and the big fish isn't a true story. Of course, Noah isn't a true story. Of course, the creation of the world isn't true. And people are making void God's word. They're justifying themselves in light of God's word, trying to make something untrue. Pastors. Man, we pastors are bad at it sometimes. We preach cheap grace. All grace, no sin. No accountability. No expectations. And when God's word doesn't align with our lifestyles, we want to change God's word. Isn't it funny how we do that? We don't want to change our lifestyle, do we? That would be uncomfortable. Rather, I'm going to try to make void some of God's words. We try to soften God's word to justify ourselves before others, to remove the guilt, to get rid of the conviction. And Jesus even gives them an illustration of how they had changed God's word to justify themselves before men. Look at verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I want you to understand something, that if you read all four Gospels, you'll You'll see this brought up in the Gospels. At least three of them that I can remember. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not sure if it's in the book of John offhand, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this verse comes up, and in others, it's given a greater context. But what Jesus is teaching here in this text is that marriage has an intention, and that intention is to be a lifelong commitment between husband and wife. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives a concession because of the hardness of Israel's heart that if, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, I believe it is, verse 3 and 4, that if you find, if, if your wife has lost favor in your eyes and you find some indecency in her, you're able to offer her a certificate of divorce. And the, the Jews tried to define what that indecency was. And depending on what Jewish rabbi you listened to, he would give you what indecency that was. Many Jewish rabbis would say that if you find uh, uh, adultery, then you can offer your wife a certificate of divorce. But others would even say, if your wife burns dinner, 
And, and in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, is it okay to divorce our wives for any reason? Do you remember that? For any reason? And Jesus says, no. It's not. See, they were trying to justify themselves or justify God's word so that they could look good before other people. Do you see that? Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's not in chapter 16 of the book of Luke. He's not trying to give a, oh, this whole theology for marriage, but he's saying this is what you do to make yourselves look good before men rather than to look good before God. You're justifying yourselves before men, but Jesus says, but God knows your heart. And Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one dot of the law to become void. I need you to understand that if you ever listen to a preacher who tries to make a single word of God become void, stop listening to that preacher. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, to tear down the law. He came to fulfill the law. So the question is, oh my gosh, I, I see that in me. I see that I often will justify myself before others so that I might not feel that shame or embarrassment or guilt. And sometimes I even do it before God so that I don't experience His conviction. And I need you to know today that Jesus is teaching us that that is dangerous to our souls. I read this morning in my quiet time. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Jesus is giving us a proverbial warning that we should not stiffen our necks when there's conviction upon us. Because one day you might be broken. So if I see myself doing this, justifying myself before men, and I understand that it's dangerous in the sight of God, what do I do? How should I seek to be justified? That is the question for us. How should I seek to be justified? Look at verse 16. Verse 16a says, The law and the prophets were until John. And since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Hear me. The law and the prophets were until John. What was the purpose of the law and the prophets? To save us? No. To point to our need for a Savior. And to point us to the Messiah. The purpose of the law and the prophets were to reveal God to us. And His perfection to us. And like a mirror that His word would reflect our actual state. That we would look into that mirror of God's word and see us for who we are and see God for who he is and we would fall down on our knees and say, woe is me, I am undone. That we would long for a savior. It, the opposite of justifying ourselves is to reckon, recognize verse 15 that says God knows our hearts. I want you to imagine 
if God were to use our big old screens up here, and he were to go through each one of us in the sanctuary today, and if he were to write in his own handwriting the thoughts and intentions of your hearts so that all might see them, would that make you feel good or uncomfortable? The opposite of justifying myself is to understand that God knows my heart. And the law has never justified anyone. No one has ever looked at the law and found themselves on the right side of the law and the lawgiver. No one. The law imprisons us until the Savior comes. The law reveals our need for a Savior. And so our justification, if we really want to be justified, which means to be made right with God, If we really want to be right with God, it starts by understanding how deeply we need God to make us right with Him. And then it says in 16b, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Here's the good news of the kingdom. In Jesus, we are more sinful than we could ever realize. And more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine. In Jesus, we are more sinful than we could ever realize. And we are more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine. That's the good news. This is why Jesus came. To justify us by doing something that we were incapable of doing. That's why there's the cross. We see the cross as the the revelation of how God would justify mankind. The cross stands as a symbol that there is a just punishment for sin. God has never dealt out a punishment that was undeserved. Every punishment is deserved. Some people will say, well, God would, I can't believe that a loving God would send me to hell, and I just need you to understand that's not biblical. It doesn't say that a loving God would send you to hell. No, my sin sent me to hell. My sin earned a just punishment. My sin offended a holy God, and there is a just punishment for it, and that just punishment is spiritual and physical death. Yet God, in His rich mercy, because He loved us, sent Jesus to live that sinless life and to die that sinner's death that He might take that just punishment on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, because of that, I can be on the right side of God in His law. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 25 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Every person save Jesus that has ever lived has fallen short of the glorious standard of God. And now, it says the most beautiful phrase 
in all of the Scripture says, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. How are we justified? How are we made right by God? By God's grace alone. That's what saves you. God's grace alone. By His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's Jesus paying your cost. He paid your ransom. He bought you out. He paid the debt that you owed. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. The word propitiation is a a sacrifice that would take the wrath of God rather than the wrath of God falling on us. The wrath of God at all the sin of the world fell on the back of Jesus, and Jesus bore the whole brunt of the wrath of God for all humanity. For everyone who would trust in Jesus, God's wrath fell on Christ. That's how we're justified. And it's sheer grace alone. Nobody ever deserved it. Nobody ever earned it. Romans 8, 3-4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God did what we couldn't do through Jesus so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Isn't that good news? We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Martin Luther, he said, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, is the sole doctrine by by which the church stands or falls. Let me read this. This is John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite books. And he says this in his book, Grace Abounding. He say, one day I was passing in the field, and there were some dashes upon my conscience. Fearing lest all were still not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought as well that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John Bunyan lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness is right before him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed, and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. And here I lived for some time, Sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, Christ. There was nothing but Christ before my eyes. Guess what it says that Jesus is doing every day for his children? He stands at the right hand of God interceding for his children. Your righteousness is before the throne of God every day. How am I made righteous? How am I justified? 
How am I made right with God? Because my righteousness, Jesus Christ himself, stands before the throne and intercedes on this sinner's behalf day after day, whether I deserve it or not, because I never do. My good frame doesn't make me any more deserving. My bad frame doesn't make me any less deserving because my righteousness, Jesus himself, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That makes me want to shout. So when I understand that, that I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that is entirely freeing. And here... I don't have to justify myself before you. I don't. I don't. I can own up to my sin in your presence because I have owned up to my sin before God. And His righteousness stands interceding for me. He doesn't condemn me. Whether you do or not. Isn't that freeing? Golly, I don't have to try to put on so that I make myself look better in front of you. I can own my own sin. And you can too. I'm I'm not looking for your approval. You shouldn't look for my approval or anybody else's approval. Why? Because in Jesus Christ alone, we have God's divine approval. And this should, should produce in me and in our church a culture of grace where sinful people can come in. That they're welcomed, they're embraced, and they have the opportunity to experience that grace of Jesus and that justification of Jesus. If I have contempt or disdain or demeaning spirit toward those who are in sin, I don't understand the justification of God by grace through faith in Jesus. So let me make this real practical. Today, I don't, I don't know where you stand. I wish I could read your heart. I can't read your heart. Actually, I, I'm glad I probably can't read your heart. But God knows your heart. And you don't have to stand before me You don't have to stand before any of these people. Ultimately, you'll stand before God. And and the first thing I want you to do today, so that when you do stand before God, you'll be found just, justified. I want you to invite Jesus today to reveal the intentions of your heart. That's a scary thought. But Jesus, I want you to search me, O God. Isn't that what the psalmist says? And know my heart. Let him in. Own it. Confess it. Confess it. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's based on a simple word at the beginning of verse 9. It says, if. The second thing I want you to do is if you've done that, if you have invited Jesus to reveal the intention of your heart and you've owned it, The second thing I want you to do is to fall into God's saving grace to justify you. Fall into it. Run and jump into it. 
It's a beautiful reservoir of grace. And that reservoir of grace is in constant use and it's never drained a single drop. That reservoir of grace is not just for one specific time in your life. That reservoir of God's grace that justifies the believer is used every day by each one of his children. Run and jump into it. Fall into it. Trust that saving grace alone. And last, I think this is going to be more important in the days ahead for our church to live as a light, a beacon, a salt and light to the world. I want you to raise your gaze to Jesus. Stop trying to get other people's approval. But Ryan, if my boss, my children, my parents, if they knew, I want you to stop trying to seek the approval of people. Lift your gaze to Jesus, and I want you to consider His approval above all others. You want to know a church that will make a difference in these days? It's a church that doesn't care what anybody says about them other than what He says about me. That's the kind of church, that's the kind of followers of Jesus that that God's kingdom needs. Would you pray with me? I'm a, before you pray, I'm going to ask you to stand up because some of you guys need to wake up. We're going to respond to the Lord. This sermon has been entirely convicting as every day I justify myself. And if you find that, that God's conviction falls toward you today, that God is speaking to your heart, that Jesus is poking at your idols and it hurts. Just come and bring them before him. Maybe just come and invite him in to reveal the intentions of your heart. If you've not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and for justification, I want you to do that. I'm inviting you to Jesus. Maybe you just want to say, God, I have this problem with fearing what people think about me more than I care about what you think about me. Maybe it's time to just get that off your chest and come lay it down. So I'm going to pray and and then you're going to have the freedom to respond however you will. And I pray that God would let you. And I pray that you wouldn't leave in these moments as we deal with the Lord. Father, we come to you today because we realize that you know everything about us. And somehow, some way, you still love us. And it's, it's only, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, because you're so rich in mercy. Because Exodus says that you are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who you are. Lord, my prayer for us is that we would invite you in. Each one of us as individuals would invite you in this morning that you would reveal our hearts. We would invite you in to justify us. And then we would seek your approval more than anybody else's.
Father, speak and work and move in our hearts, and I trust you now to do what only you can do. Christ's powerful name, I pray. Amen. As we sing, let's respond to the Lord.